Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognizing and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organizations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from uh, good quality design to supply chain headaches to you know, educating the youth of tomorrow. And of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's program, I'm delighted to be joined by Yeston Davies, the Chief Executive of Colleges Wales. And without further ado, Yeston, welcome onto the show. Shabai, uh, hello, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. It's um, you know, a pleasure to to have you on today. Um, it's you know been a, an interesting time over the the sort of past eighteen months, especially for those in education, for those supporting educators, and having to deal with you know sort of government at all levels, really, especially yourself. Um, you know, being based in Wales, having to deal with sort of UK elements and and Welsh elements as well. Let's start by just asking, how's it all been? Hmm? Well, it's been uh, interesting, it's been exciting, it's been uh, challenging. Uh, pick an adjective and it probably applies right now to you know, our experience over the, uh, was it, year and a half? It seems longer. It's like a decade, in fact, isn't it? Uh, so all those things are many, many more. But ultimately, um, I'm really proud of what uh, Further Education Colleges in Wales have done, uh, how they've worked together, uh, and how hopefully we can, uh, as we talk at the start of a new academic year, how we can see uh, some new opportunities Arising uh, for a lot of young people, uh, a lot of adult learners continuing returning to education because of the challenges, not just of, of COVID, but of Brexit as well. Uh, so, yeah, I am strangely positive despite a very long 14, 15 month period of COVID, uh, looking forward uh, to a new academic year. And do you think that, you know, over the past sort of as I say, let's let's focus on the last academic year, shall we? That um, you know everything sort of you know worked out well in the end. Was it um, you know acceptable um, you know from results wise to support for teachers to support for um, you know your own organisation working cool. with you know government departments? Huh? Well, it has been tough, but I think we've delivered uh, the very the very best outcome we could. You know, in some sense, the best obviously is always qualified and it's, it's something you have to think of in, in, in context um, and if you don't do that you'll, you'll probably find yourself just sort of you know uh, whizzing away rather than trying to, trying to flourish so it's important you see things in context and you understand uh, the bigger dynamic and, and the bigger challenges and I, I'm, I'm really pleased with, with, what, with how we ended the year um, but uh, ultimately to say we've we got to accept that it, it was a year that, like no other hopefully at least um, and then uh, begin to, 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 to accept that and then I'll plan for the next years, weeks, months and days that, that lie ahead. So as an organisation, we, we, we're essentially an SME in our own right. We employ roughly 14 to 15 people with some contractors, which turn over, let's say, 3 million. But we work in a sector that's worth roughly half a billion. 
uh, and those 13 colleges, for education institutions and two designated colleges that are part of our network and our customers, if you like, we advise. Uh, they've had some really tough times, uh, but it's been also a pleasure to work with their chief execs and principals with their senior management teams and also to witness firsthand in conversations because we've been planning the future, the real dedication and commitment uh, that we see in, in, in the cohorts of staff, whether they're lecturers, support staff, you know, administrators, uh, they've all put in the shift this year to try to, particularly towards the end of the year, to try to make the assessment experiences as positive as possible for young people. That is something, you know, everyone seems to have you know, stood up during this time. Um, you know, there have been so many issues, both you know, at home, at work, changes to um, the way people are having to sort of deal with their, their day to day. And, you know, especially for educators as well, you know, having to, to, to work remotely but also having to, to maintain that sort of get up and go attitude each day and make sure that things are are positive for those that they're sort of educating. Um, you know, especially as an organization that works and advises, as you say, do you feel like you had to change the particular way that you were working, um, you know, to be able to adapt to the sort of, you know, hor- pardon the phrase, but um, that new normal of the past year? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, m- m- most definitely any advisory role has to have a very clear understanding of what is advice and what is operational um, and what is guided. And sometimes in, in a pandemic, particularly you're trying to create a, uh, a cohesive response from 13 different institutions across across Wales. And as you say, to relate that to what's happening more, more widely across the UK, it's inevitable, I suppose, that you go from being more advice-giving to engaging more directly in the provision of a service. But in effect, kind of crosses that, that line. And it's normally a very, very clear demarcation point. Any advice-giving service has to make sure that it, it allows its clients or its members or its customers to do what only they can do, which is get on and deliver. But what we found early doors of the pandemic and then into this last academic year is that we would need to provide uh, in a much more collaborative kind of way uh, practical support in the system. But, and the, the best way that we did that was in the area of, of employment relations and how to create a common understanding in Wales of what employees and um, learners or, or students could, could, could experience. By doing that and having a common, if you like, position that reflected all 30 members, uh, that could create a very interesting space for us because that's not normally where we would be. But it's where we've ended up because of COVID. And I suppose the question for us now is, is what do we do about that? Do we kind of go back to the old normal? Do we try to build on the new normal? Or actually will the post-COVID and I would say post-Brexit challenges that, that, that uh, um, particularly vocational education skills is facing, will that require a different model um, from the sector, one that's much more cohesive, one that's more sector-based, and where perhaps some of the old differences between institutions might uh, start to wane and, and is a much clearer, common or perhaps regional picture developing within Wales. So lots of challenges ahead. But at the same time, you know, we've also had to deal with the usual management challenges of individuals looking for new jobs, um, uh, changes in life circumstances, you know, staff uh, uh, ex- expecting, uh, you know, a family addition, all those sort of things, and people preparing for retirement, all those normal day-to-day issues have also obviously collided with the very exceptional circumstances that's been caused by COVID. And ultimately, particularly for an organization such as ours working with a sector with a clear mission, the challenge is always to be purpose-driven. What is it we are trying to achieve? What 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 is the immediate to long-term goal? Where's the North Star? What are we what direction are we following? And when you're purpose-driven, I think it does allow you to be able to 
filter out some of the, the, the noise and ultimately allows you to sleep at night because you're working towards that further long-term goal rather than coping with the, the crisis or the problem that's, that's come up during, during that day. And I suppose you know the benefit for you, obviously having been in post since 2015, was that you have been able to focus on that sort of long-term vision, that long-term goal. You had a few years to sort of bed in before all of this this came about but have you yourself uh, you know felt a change in the way that you've worked the way that you've had to sort of stand up and support your staff um you know recently or was it were you already doing the the areas that you that you needed to to make sure that there was a healthy work-life balance that there was a, a healthy sort of environment um at the organization and uh you know i hope that's the case <laughs> Well, most definitely. I mean, you know, COVID has presented opportunities as well as challenges. It's that classic sort of, you know, sort of glass half full, half empty kind of, uh, kind of, kind of position. Um, what was good, what has been good, I think, uh, you say we, ha- we had a normal way of working. Uh, and we'd already looked at how we could be more flexible in our working pattern. How could we be more distributed uh, in the authority and decision making of, of, of the, the other staff and advisors who, who obviously work alongside myself and us who, uh, sort of um, senior directors and our, and our FD. So we'd, we'd experimented with that. We had tried to distribute um, responsibility to create more flexible working practices. We'd invested quite a lot in cloud technology based on the fact that we would often have staff, for instance, running a international mobility program, say, in Spain or potentially over in the US or other parts of the globe. So they needed access to good kits. They need to be able to dial in and to engage with us as, as the staff back in Cardiff, even before COVID was even uh, even thought of. We needed to be able to empower individuals to give good advice and guidance to our wider membership, even before COVID. So having that there as part of our working culture, I think really helped us to, to move quite overnight, really, uh, from the kind of an office-based, semi-peripatetic model to RCD distributed model both in terms of authority and accountability but also in terms of where people are, uh, are spread across mainly mainly south wales but you know linking to uh, to north and, and and west and other parts of, of our little, little country here on the uh, on the margins of the uk so we've had that in place but i guess i, I certainly underestimated the challenges of moving to a totally remote distant work from home model um the challenges it brings, not just in the in the initial few weeks and months, but as, as weeks and days and months go on, and again in response to Welsh government guidance, we are unlikely to be returning to the office until uh, January of, of 2022. So mm-hmm. it's now how do we evolve the working process to, to, to allow people to come back into the building, which we can do as restrictions are, are actually a lot lower than they were say, a year ago. How can we how we get the best of remote working and distributed working, but how can we then um, Make sure that you know the doctors have to stop somewhere, and, and the team have to contribute to the line manager and the line manager myself. There has to be accountability, and it has to be a process. So, how can we do that in a way that takes the best of the kind of COVID working practices, uh, but also just just physically sometimes gets us back in the same building, so we can we can gossip about what's going on rather than some sort of formal, you know, uh, chief execs communication email to keep people uh, up to date. And you're right on that one. It is uh, it is the gossip. It is the you know the having the meetings as much as as everybody frowns at that hour long meeting when you're in the office. But it's a great way to be able to 
you know, see those nonverbal cues, feel a bit of tension in the room. And that's something that people, you know, especially people in leadership positions have had to adapt to and sometimes struggled to keep on top of um, whilst working remotely. So, you know, there definitely will be place for this sort of hybrid model I, I you know, I can see going forwards. And, and from speaking to business leaders up and down the country, it seems like there's a lot that's been positive or has been, you know, sort of fast forwarded um, from plans that were already in place. Okay. But, that's really, that's really true, true with your customers or your stakeholders in our case. It's like the people who we have to um, to, to work with and, and, mm. and join the journey. It is much easier to sometimes be in disagreement when you're down the line and you can, you can blame the internet connection and then dropping out the meeting. Um, <laughs> you know, <and laughs> the same with the customer, or indeed the same with the learner in the classroom. If someone's not getting what you're what you're teaching, then you can see it in person. You say the body language. Um, whether someone's not going to give you the buy-in signal, or it's actually not, it's not you know, supportive of your political position that you want to take on their behalf. So then, in our case, you can see that a bit easier in the room without you becoming, I suppose, that that you know, is everybody in agreement? Can you please raise your yellow hand to the signal <laughs> agreement kind of moment that we, we seem to have? But you know, it's it's, it's about adapting, isn't it? It's about, it's about change. And I think the other thing that I've learned is all the stuff I did on the MBA program kind of was out the window <laughs> because, you know, um, you just don't have that sort of um, structured, sort of allegedly normative way of planning and working things. Mm. You, you, you've got a much more visceral, uh, organic sort of working environment. And the truth is that's probably the case anyway, even, even in, the, in the old normal, um, that things are much more organic and, you know, what's the phrase, you know, stuff happens. So you've got to be able to, learn to, to live with that. Um, and long-term planning perhaps is something now which is more of an aspiration in the sense of what direction we want to go in rather than having a detailed five-year plan with a one-year operational plan broken down into segments or quarters. You know? An interesting point, that one, uh, that these things are now a bit more, more sort of wide-sweeping, aren't they? And um, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you know, given that, uh, you know, the challenges of Brexit and the fact that you are wanting to put sort of Welsh education on the map as well and, um, you know, work with people, you know, across borders. Are you, gonna fi- are you finding that, you know, there's going to be issues with attracting, you know, students or, or staff into, into Wales? Or, you know, is Brexit not having that much of an effect as maybe... You previously thought that. Well, no, but Brexit is definitely having an effect. Um, and prior to obviously you know, Brexit Day, we did a lot of work with our colleagues in the HE sector in, in universities as well as with the Welsh government. And we could clearly identify that, that those early doors, that the impact would be slightly different if further education. So, unlike HE and like universities, we don't have international faculty and people coming in, you know, and sort of spending time in the department and being a leading research sort of fellow in, in your university, but from maybe a third-party country. So we, we didn't have that, that challenge. But what we I think we were, were right to predict is, is that the shortage of skilled labour within what we often refer to as the foundation economy, the, the activities that are going in and around communities, the potential shortage of labour there, particularly in skilled trades, would put, I think, challenges on those skilled trades who are lecturing in, in FE colleges. So, you know, quite clearly, if, if you can be earning 40K uh, plus pension um, in a college, in, in, a, in a time of economic challenge, that's a good place to go to, to work in if you're a skilled trade. Right. Clearly, in the current circumstances, there's a, there's a demand for skilled trades. Therefore, there, we would expect, and always do expect, that, that trade base to move back into, uh, into the community, into the industry, like the business, into, into self-employment. 
uh, while times are good. And, and we see that as well, not just in the, in the staff cohort. We see it in the, in the balance between in-college training, FE college training, and on-the-job apprenticeship or other forms of, say, part-time training. So we knew Brexit was going to alter the labour market. We knew it was going to change many of the dynamics around um, you know, who and when and how people study uh, at any economic change would. And I think COVID, in some senses, has, has been used, I would say, but by politicians of all, all persuasions to perhaps cover up what is now emerging, perhaps to be a more challenging a challenge in the future to us, which is, which is Brexit rather than COVID. That, that is the way as well, isn't it? It's always what um, is the story being told on any given day and, uh, you know, especially on the, the political side, using um, the story to, to sort of further an agenda as well. Um, cool. It's the the sort of dark arts of, of politics, really. But um, uh, going on to slightly more sort of ho- potentially hopeful um, elements, you know, what are you sort of looking at for then the next 12 months? Are you going to be seeing, uh, you know, as you say, despite not going back into the office potentially full time until after Christmas and dealing with the the slight, um, you know, Welsh restrictions that are still there? Are you thinking that everything's going to be getting back to normal? Are you going, do you have any sort of plans that are in place for the next 12 months to, to sort of really boost the organisation and, and the reach? Uh, definitely. Um We've set out with, with the members a very, very sort of like guiding corporate plan. Again, we used to we avoided this sense of, you know, in quarter one we do this, and by quarter, you know, sort of four of year five, we have completed uh, the master vision. We, we've really put that to one side. And what we are starting with is a much more discursive, flexible model, a negotiated sort of organic model of what, what we do on behalf of the members and indeed what we don't do. So we allow them to, to go back into those areas where it's clearly their operational decision locally, how they want to run their affairs now that there isn't a sort of a, a blanket position imposed on everybody by, by COVID. So it, it's about, I guess it was grasping that opportunity to be more responsive, to be more customer focused, if you like, in, in, in other terms of, of business and, and have that more relational Less transactional model, and again, these are all things, of course, you know, we would we would talk about in our management training and leadership. You know, we would talk about moving from a transactional model to a relationship model, one built on trust, rather than almost the cost of service or the price of a unit of our production. Uh, that you know, that that's all good, and, and it's not going to happen overnight just because we want it to happen. We will need to, I think, to to work very closely with our members, and particularly their senior staff and and, and mid level staff, who are I feel like our go to people to to work with and ensure that they feel fully bought into what we are trying to achieve for the sector and that they, they fully understand their role, not just in their college or the department, but how it's trying to transform uh, post-compulsory education in Wales. We're also then looking to try to, to mitigate and to manage some of the financial contingencies um, and the operational contingencies that go with not knowing whether or not, for instance, our um, international exchange programme uh, will, will be able to run. So, Previously, we ran it in the Erasmus Plus program for the European Commission. Uh, we were already looking to start the, the, the Welsh component, if you like, of the Turing scheme under the UK government. Uh, and, of course, we, you know, we have the Welsh government's own international learning exchange program, which, which, which has just been, been launched. Now, we need to run those. We need to get the financials right. We need to understand what the, um, you know, what the mobility is going to look like, when they're going to happen. Again, it's a backdrop, of course, not knowing which countries on which colour list at any one point in time. So... We, we have to go back into some really good fellow operational contingency planning, which is much more into your spreadsheets, into your flowcharts, and deciding what's going to happen when, at the same time as being more open to change and challenge. And I think that's 
for any human interaction business, we're working with customers or individuals who are part of your, your, your supply, that's always now going to be the challenge. But it was never that, but COVID has made us realize that we have to find a much more responsive and dynamic way of working with people rather than setting out in a, in a master plan. Well, yes, and I think that's a really good point, um, you know, being able to work with people, getting on the, the relationship and, you know, being adaptable. And I think that that's one thing that everybody has uh, realized over the past uh, past year, really, um, that it's all about, you know, the relationships with clients, customers, partners, staff. And I think that's a really positive note on which to, you know, sort of wrap up this conversation. You know, it was really great to be hearing from you and, um, you know, it'd be great to have you back on in a few months, um, you know, once that turning point of, of, let's say, Christmas and we go into the new year um, has happened and we can, you know, see how those sort of, you know, sweeping um, plans have gone and, and see whether, you know, how, how everyone's looking ahead to the future, hopefully, in an even more positive light. Right. Great. That's, that's really, really useful to look forward to. And thanks for the opportunity to, to talk today. Brilliant. Thank you. That was Yestin Davies, CEO of College Wales. And next up on the show, we have Lord David Blunkett, Chairman of the Leaders' Council, and he will be talking about the impact of COVID-19 over the past 18 months, as well as the economic and political landscape for the future. He's going to be interviewed by Matthew O'Neill. Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.